Would you pray with me, please? Lord, how thankful we are that a celebration such as Christmas is rooted in this spectacular truth that you, the God of eternity, the God who has no beginning and no end, entered into space and time, and not just as deity in fullness, which you are, always have been and always will, but you entered the world as a baby. What great grace, what great humility you have demonstrated by becoming what we are. The creator became a part of his creation. Oh, Lord God, what, what a marvel it is We cannot even comprehend how the infinite, eternal God could confine himself to a mother's womb for that nine-month period and then to be born an infant, fully dependent upon earthly parents for everything, yet at the same time upholding the universe by your powerful word, giving to your mother the very life that she sought to give back to you. We marvel at the greatness of this work and pray that today you would bring the force of its truth, the life-giving work of, of your death and resurrection in particular to bear upon our souls. We need it. We need to be changed and transformed by all that you are and all that you have done. So we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would grace us with your presence that by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, you would meet us exactly where we are, but not leave us where we are or even as we are, but transform us through this word that you have said is alive and powerful, that's sharper than a two-edged sword, that is uh, given in order to penetrate to the deepest recesses of soul and spirit. Oh, Lord God, let the word do all its work as the Holy Spirit employs it so skillfully, so lovingly, and savingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to the Old Testament prophecy of Micah? We read this portion earlier in the service, but I want to ask you to go back to Micah 5. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, Uh, those are scattered around the room. The seat racks in front of you uh, should have a copy of that. You'll find this portion of Scripture on page 779. Micah is often referred to as a minor prophet. That just has to do with the size of the book. He actually prophesied alongside another prophet you know well as Isaiah. Isaiah wrote more extensively than Micah did, but Micah was not a lesser prophet, if you will than Isaiah, and that's a whole story in and of itself. Before we read this portion of Scripture, though, I just want to make a few introductory thoughts and and set it in its right context that's going to help us not only understand the day and time of Micah as well as the day and time of Christ's birth, but it's also going to have bearing on our present day and how we receive God's Word and then seek to live in light of God's Word in our present day. You know, when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem inquiring about the recently born king of the Jews, Matthew tells us, as we read earlier, that it created quite a stir. Now, there's a reason for that. Herod was a paranoid king. 
I've actually touched on that in the last two Sundays prior to this morning, giving you just a little bit of history about how Herod put to death anyone, including family members, that he deemed to be a rival to his royal throne. Well, that paranoia, as you can imagine, moves to the forefront when the Magi from the east arrive and and bless their hearts, they're just assuming that the rest of Jerusalem is informed that this question will be easily answered when they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Well, in Matthew 2, verse 3, uh, the gospel tells us specifically that Herod the king heard this and was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Well, he wants to know where his rival is born. And I'm sure all Jerusalem is stirred up saying, oh no, is another killing spree about to ensue? And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Isn't it interesting that the way the text reads doesn't seem to indicate there's any downtime where these chief priests and scribes have to go back into the records and say, does anybody know? I'm not sure. Has anybody heard? Is there some Old Testament prophecy? No, it's just at the forefront. In Bethlehem. Well, they're actually quoting from Micah 5, verse 2. But it's a 700-year-old prophecy at that point. Who here is looking back 700 years in history to see what some supposed prophet might have said? And I know with, with every turn of the calendar into a new year, somebody will bring up a famous prophet like Nostradamus. And there are some interesting coincidences, I would say, where he said stuff would happen and things like that happened. But I do marvel at the fact that they quote a 700-year-old prophecy by a man named Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah. You know, a little sidebar, but I think this is quite interesting. The name Micah means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? And in a sense, that's always the question that humanity is being brought to face. Who is like this God? Is there another one like him? Could he be dependent upon? Could he be worshipped and served as he calls for us to worship and serve him? Who is like Yahweh? Well, that's what the name Micah means. Now listen to a Bible historian who writes a little bit about the day and age in which Micah lived. Micah lived in a period of economic revolution which was proving a mixed blessing. Unfortunately, the influx of material prosperity had spawned, listen to this, a selfish materialism, a complacent approach to religion as a means of achieving human desires, and number three, the disintegration of personal and social values. Isn't it interesting how prosperity and the disintegration of those personal and social values always seem to run together in the course of human history? This historian goes on. Wealth was invested in land with the result that the traditional system of agricultural small holdings collapsed with the growth, growth of vast estates. Now that was, a, that, that was a tragic development for the nation of Israel because when God rescued them from Egypt, part of their inheritance was, was the fact that he portioned out the land and said to the various tribes, this is your inheritance, this is your inheritance, this is your inheritance. Well, the economic machine took over, and so these small family farms, so to speak, are being bought up by the wealthy. And it's interesting to me that even some of the recent news reports I've heard, you know, the alarming rate of how the Chinese are buying up American farms. It's not the first time in human history it's happened. 
The historian continues, age-old sanctions, sanctions associated with the divine covenant were shrugged off and social concern was at the bottom of the list of priorities of national and local government officials. Even religious leaders, priests and prophets, did little more than echo the spirit of the period, buttressing the society that gave them their livelihood. What this historian is noting is that guys like Micah and Isaiah were rare. The typical prophet or priest of the day would just kind of tell the people what they wanted to hear. There's enough of that going on in our world today. Where even supposed religious leaders are doing nothing more than accommodating the popular cultural trends. But Micah's an exception. He stands alone. And if you were to read the entirety of his prophecy, you would see that like bookends, by God's spirit and authority, he actually confronts the culture, calls them to repent of their sins, return to God in a humble relationship of faith and service. But in the middle of his prophecy, there's something quite extraordinary, and that's where we've turned to chapter 5 to see that in the middle of confronting the nation of Judah and their kings and their powerful religious leaders to repentance, he gives a promise. And I pause here to say the context of Micah's day is intriguing to me because our generation, like every other generation before, feels like our day is harder to live in than anybody else. And even some of you younger people would say to your parents, oh, it was so much easier. Maybe in some respects. I mean, I'm, I'm very glad I didn't grow up with social media. That, that would have been my death. It's a lot of pressure to live under. But it's not like, you know, my childhood was pressure-free. And it's not like your grandparents had an easy, uh, an easy existence. Frankly, most generations that have lived on planet Earth have faced extraordinary pressures. And Micah's generation did. The generation that was alive when Jesus was born under Herod's rule did. We do. So all of this should sound familiar to us. We're not the first generation to wrestle with how are we going to live this life that God has given us. It makes me particularly glad that the Bible was written by ordinary people to ordinary people by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The three kings that Micah prophesied under were Jotham, the son of Uzziah, uh, another king named Ahaz, and then thirdly, Hezekiah. Now, again, real briefly, and then I'll be done setting up the, the background. Jotham was considered a righteous king, in the eyes of the Lord, but his great failure was that he, he refused to cleanse the temple of its pagan influences, would not tear down the high places that were set up to worship pagan or, or worship false gods uh, and paganism, and subsequently the people of, Gen of Judah continued in their evil ways. He was not a strong leader in that respect. Ahaz, the second king, was, it, you can just read the, the stories uh, of his rule and find out he was just evil, period, straight up. Would not submit to God personally, would not lead Israel in the way that God, or lead Judah in the way that, that God had ordained. As a matter of fact, he not only gave the nation over to spiritual apostasy, but he even squandered Judah's resources and credibility by forging an alliance with the Assyrian king who was threatening him at that point. And so Ahaz gave away their independence. 
And then along comes Hezekiah, who in, in many, many ways was a good king, but even he acted foolishly and arrogantly at a couple of key points, and he, in a sense, pushed Judah closer and closer to the exile. So it's not hard to imagine the disappointment and disillusionment of Micah's generation. And that brings us to Micah 5, verse 2. Follow along, please, as I read this part of Scripture. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God." And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We'll end our reading there this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now notice with me, if you will, some really important truths. First of all, his unusual origin. This king that Micah is announcing has a most unexpected, a surprising origin, if you will. First of all, he comes from Bethlehem, Ephrata. Now, to say that Bethlehem is a humble town is, is to exaggerate it a little bit, and, or I should say is not to exaggerate it at all. Uh, it, it is an obscure, out-of-the-way place. When I was a child, because my parents were from uh, a particular town, we loved to go there and celebrate Christmas uh, with the extended family. And I loved, I've told many of you this before, I love telling people that we're going to Paris for Christmas. And when I say Paris, many of you think of the most influential Paris on the face of the earth. And it's known for uh, its politics and its economy. It's known for its great art. Some of the greatest museums in the world are located in the Paris that you're thinking of. But then I'd have to qualify that and, and when people would say, really? You know, they'd ask all kinds of questions. How does your family afford to go to Paris? And, and, and when will you go? How long will you stay? And then I would say, oh, you were thinking Paris, France? We're going to Paris, Illinois. That famous metropolis in the middle of cornfields. At its height, it was 10,000 people. It's no longer 10,000 people. It's actually kind of a pitiful place. Well, Bethlehem was kind of a, a pitiful place. And the prophet goes on to say, you're too little to be among the clans. Too little, like the kid brother, the little sibling that, that's forgotten. Bethlehem is not without historical, uh, with, without historical significance. You can read the Old Testament and find out, first of all, it's the burial place of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. We're familiar with it as a church family because it's the location of, of that famous woman, Naomi, and the setting for much of that beautiful little book earlier in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, that tells us the story of God's steadfast love uh, to a widow named Naomi and also a younger widow named Ruth and a single man named Boaz that most women weren't looking to, to be married to. And out of that union of Ruth and Boaz came the Davidic line. So consequently, with the birth of Obed and then Jesse and finally David, Bethlehem kind of makes its way to the map. But still, even at this point of Micah's prophecy, he's saying it's still not a significant town. As a matter of fact, there's a formal sense where that little phrase, too little to be among the clans, has reference to a specific band of a thousand warriors 
If you know anything about Israel's history, you would know that they were always able to put a very large and skilled army together. And Bethlehem is too little to add anything significant to the military strength of Israel. They couldn't even raise a clan of warriors. So in a sense, Micah is saying at this point, nobody goes to Bethlehem looking for the next great warrior or chief or king, but God has a purpose for it. And from God's perspective, Bethlehem is a more worthy location as the birthplace of this promised ruler because the capital city, Jerusalem, has become a place of spiritual faithlessness. Another author writes, Micah confirmed God's promise to David, but not without transforming the human conception or expectations. He dissociated the messianic reign from Jerusalem, the capital of of Israel, because Jerusalem had been tainted by the corruption of power, immorality, foreign influences, and idolatry. And it was still true of Jerusalem at the time of Christ's birth. God wasn't looking to connect his Messiah to the throne of Herod. God wasn't impressed with the religious leaders in Jerusalem where he would use them as a springboard for Messiah's religious ministry. It's a most humble origin. It is, first of all, a little town, as as we even sing in that Christmas carol, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Next time you sing that, you ought to think, oh, insignificant, obscure town. Too little to be among the clans. But notice this as we read on. There is an ancient origin from this, for this ruler. His origin is from of old. If you're reading the King James, you see the little phrase, his goings forth. That's actually a very literal translation of the Hebrew text. The point is that this ruler is no upstart. Now, in comparison to those three kings that I mentioned, Jotham began to reign at 25, Ahaz began to reign at 20, and Hezekiah was 25. You know, the frontal lobe of boys isn't even fully developed until they're 26. Why would you make one of those guys your king? Well, it has to do with who his dad was. It is a little scary. I don't mean any offense to you who are under the age of 26, but you've still got some growing to do. You don't know as much as you think you do. You're not as able to, to lead in the way that you might aspire to lead. It, it would have been a terrifying thing to see a young, inexperienced king ascend the throne. But certainly this one that Micah is prophesying of will have the hereditary credentials that are necessary to assume the sovereign rule of Israel. But what makes him unique is that his arrival in Bethlehem will not actually be his first going forth. It's not the first time. He has been in a position of power. One of my old teachers who uh, I had many years ago and one of my favorite uh, instructors and even preachers of the word wrote a book uh, about Christ and some of his Old Testament titles and such. And in that particular work, he said, his coming into Bethlehem would not mark the beginning of his existence To have existence prior to a point in time requires eternity, a unique perfection of deity. And that's where the next phrase reveals to us that his origin is from of old. Look at what the text says, from ancient days. 
Now, that could be literally days long ago, like if you were backing up in history from 700 B.C. to the time of David, you'd have 300 years, 1,000 B.C., but that's not what Micah has in view. Ancient days that precede human history. You know, Jesus himself said, and he really stirred the pot when he made this claim uh, to Jerusalem's religious power brokers. He said, you know, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't even say before Abraham was, I had an existence, as if I I was. No, he actually invokes and claims the very name of Yahweh, the self-existent God, the one who has no beginning, who has no end, who dwells outside of time, who is independent of every other being or entity, who has life in himself. This is the one that Micah promises. And notice with me, if you will, that it is not only a humble origin, but it is an ancient origin from ancient days. Now, number two, let's look at his royal authority. This will only take a moment. Go back to verse two. The authority of divine purpose has been given to this one, and he appears for Yahweh. For me is what God is saying. This ruler will come out of Bethlehem for the Lord's purposes, and he is not subservient to anyone else. He is God's appointed king. And so there is authority of divine purpose that appears here. And then there is also authority of global dominion. Now he says, first of all, in this verse, he will be the ruler in Israel. He will be given dominion over this nation. But then as we read all the way to verse 4, we saw it was to the ends, to the ends of the earth. So there will be no limit to his royal authority. He's bringing God's agenda and not just to a nation that's struggling at this moment. He's bringing God's agenda to the world. No wonder Herod would feel a little threatened because this ruler is not like any other. I'm going to come back to that thought at the end of the message, but I want you to begin to think, why would a ruler like Herod not welcome one who was sent from on high, sent from eternity past, sent with the power and capacity to do things that no human ruler had ever done? That moves us to the third category, though, and the most spectacular, in my estimation, is his shepherding care. Now, again, look at the text with me, please. Though he comes from such obscure origins, though he does come for God Almighty. Verse four tells us that he shall stand and shepherd his flock. I love that first phrase. He will stand for his people. Now again, remember the people Micah is speaking to are the ones who've been exploited, neglected, and sacrificed for the good of their leaders. Some of them like the kings I've mentioned, some of them like the religious leaders who were unfaithful to God, who were only concerned about advancing their own cause, increasing their own power, even increasing their own wealth. And you know, religion can be a powerful means for achieving wealth and influence. But at whose expense? I wonder if you relate to that and think for just a moment uh, through the relationships that you have been placed under in particular. I suspect that there are some of you who could tell stories of how you too have been exploited or neglected or even sacrificed by, by others for their agendas, to advance their causes. What a tragedy that is. 
And if you're sitting here, you are in good company. If you say, yeah, I can think of, of certain ways that I've been exploited, maybe by my political party, maybe by my religious leaders, maybe by a spouse or a family member or a business associate. I've been taken advantage of. I've been neglected. I can tell stories of how I've been the one to bear personal sacrifice. It's painful. It's frustrating. It's disheartening. What a word of hope this is from the prophet Micah to ordinary people who are watching one king after another fail them. And this shepherd king is not like that for he will stand. Now, this word stand means he will rise up to take action. Oh, and that's the thing we long for in so many areas of life and society today. This is the king, though, who will rise up to take action on behalf of his people. You know, Jesus rises up to take upon himself your very nature and mine as he enters the world as this baby. He rises up to take upon himself our weaknesses and infirmities. Isaiah 53 says he rises up to bear your griefs and to be weighed down with your sorrows. He rises up even at the end of his life on Calvary's cross to be pierced for your rebellion, crushed for your sins, beaten so you would be made whole and scourged that you might be healed. He rises from the tomb in order that you might know your sins have been forgiven, that you have been justified, not only from all unrighteousness, but declared perfectly righteous for the sake of his obedient substitutionary life. He rises from that tomb that you might know that your great enemies, death and hell, have been vanquished forever. He rises out of this world as the New Testament describes his ascension into glory, but only for a brief time. He rises according to his promise in order to prepare a place for you in the Father's house in order that you might live with him forever. This king that Micah declares will come will stand in action for you. He's not only a shepherd king who will stand, he is a shepherd king who will shepherd his people. That term shepherd refers to one who feeds and leads and protects independent or dependent animals. Sheep are kind of pitiful, aren't they? We sometimes make it seem like really sweet and you know, even like desirable work. But talk to people who've kept sheep. They're smelly, they're dirty. Apparently they're fairly incompetent and stupid. But shepherding in the Bible is a beautiful metaphor used by the Lord to describe the kind of care that he gives to people who are fairly stupid and smelly, who make life inconvenient for everyone around us. In his most famous psalm, the 23rd, David highlights the care of the great shepherd king. And one of the phrases that so many of us know and love well is he leads me beside or into green pastures and beside the still waters. He restores my soul. When Samuel anointed David as king over Israel, the Lord said to him, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. He didn't call him to be a great executor. He didn't call him to be the kind of monarch that most of us would 
think might occupy a throne. The Lord never intended for the kings of Israel to be typical Eastern rulers. His desire was always that they would care for the people entrusted to them, that they would be kings who would nourish the hearts and souls of their people, protecting them both from physical danger but also from spiritual threats. And to that end, being kings who would lead them into a greater knowledge and personal experience of the God who created them. I pause for a moment and and appeal to the men in particular who are here, dads especially. You know, you are, are positioned by God to be the shepherd in your home. Your family needs you to nourish their hearts, to protect them from evil, and to lead them into a more intimate knowledge of the living God. Micah's prophecy includes condemnation of the kings of Israel and Judah, but this picture he's giving us in chapter five is of a ruler who will not bow before other kings like Ahaz did before Tiglath-Pileser III, but a king who with strength will care for his people. Now, Now look at the particular phrases here. He will shepherd in the strength of the Lord. That is, he's endued with Yahweh's authority to accomplish all that needs to be done. You know, one of the criticisms, and I think it's a fair criticism of our current government, is that they will not get serious reforms passed because they do not have the willpower or the personal integrity. It's just maddening, isn't it? One party blames the other. And then there's a little, you know, swing of the pendulum, and and then that party gets power, and then they blame the other party. Well, we would, but they won't cooperate. Knock it off. They're crippled by self-interest and special interest. Micah promises a ruler who will accomplish his work in the strength of the Lord. Again, the self-existent God who needs nothing from anyone else but possesses all things in himself. There are no special interest groups or political action committees or lobbying groups in the court of this shepherd king. He always does what's right and he does it in the power of God Most High. Look at the second part of this, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Now, there, there are two pieces that we're gonna meditate on for just a few minutes here, so track with me, please. First of all is the word majesty. Majesty is a word we use to describe things or people that command our awe. Sometimes we use it sarcastically to make a point to a family member or friend who acts a little too high and mighty, don't we? We say, is there anything else I could get you, your majesty? Would you like fries with that? And then our family member kind of comes to their senses, at least we hope. Hey, don't talk to me like that. Well, don't act like that. You know, who made you king? Who made you queen? So we know what this word majesty has to do with, and, and even opening the dictionary, it just simply talks about the greatness or splendor or quality of, or character of an individual. And we don't use this term to refer to the ordinary things, do we? So the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So now let's take the second part, the name of the Lord his God. Well, the name uh, and names of God as they appear in the scriptures are really important for us because they're always revelatory. So that's why when you encounter the name Yahweh or Lord in all caps, you need to be thinking, ah, that is the great I am. That's the self-existent God who has no beginning, no end. He is infinite, eternal, he's all powerful. He's the I am. He also reveals himself to us in some other intimate and personal ways. The Lord who provides, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord who heals, Jehovah Rapha. The Lord who sees, 
There are all kinds of names and titles that the Lord uses to reveal himself to us. He wants you to know, this is who I am. But the fact that this king will shepherd his people in the majesty of the name is extraordinary when you begin to think of all that that entails because what he's telling us is that all that God is, all that he reveals in those multiple names and titles will be brought to bear upon the lives of the people that he, in fact, is called to rule. Now, here's what's interesting. When we think of majesty uh, being brought to bear, we might think of pomp and circumstance and glitz and glory, crowns and robes and, and you know, big choirs and, and trumpet announcements and all, all kinds of things like that. And there is certainly an aspect of God's glory that would be in that realm. But that's not what is highlighted with the first coming of our Lord. Turn to Luke's gospel with me, if you will. In Luke 9, there's an account of a miraculous moment And I want you to see this. Luke 9, find verse 37. Luke is telling us that after the transfiguration that Peter and John and James were privileged to experience, they return from that mountaintop and re-enter that ordinary day-to-day ministry. And in verse 37, we read this. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters, and, and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Now look at verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Are you making the connection here? This kind of personal ministry and relationship is a distinctive part of God's majesty. The majesty of the name of the Lord is is not displayed in pomp and circumstance primarily. It is not heard in grand speeches regarding new public policy or announcements of sweeping legislation and a new bill of rights for, for our citizens. The majesty of the name of the Lord is seen as Jesus stands or rises to take action in order to rebuke the powers of darkness that have for too long held sway over one child and his father. Do you see the personal nature of how he rules or shepherds in the majesty of the name of God? For many of us, God is kind of up there and out there. We don't think of him in personal terms. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that he would want to enter into a personal relationship with us or that he would ever touch our lives in a personal way. But these stories in the Gospels, beloved, are written for our understanding and encouragement that we might know the living God who entered the world is majestic in his glory of intimacy. It's the glory of God to enter the life of a a helpless father 
and a demonized son. It's the glory of God to enter the lives of sinful people who've made a wreck of things by the choices that they've made and transform them and renew them. It is the majesty of of this God to come to you and me in our most intimate and personal needs. And Jesus displayed this powerfully, not just in this story, but he revealed it in the multiple miracles of healing, sickness of every kind. He cleansed the lepers. He caused blind people to see, the lame to walk. He exercised countless demons uh, and relocated them from the lives of those that they were demonizing. He raised the dead. He calmed tempestuous seas and storms. He fed multiple thousands of people. He was bringing the majesty of the name of God to bear as Lord of all. The majesty of the name is displayed in that Christ made a home with a, with a young woman, his mother, Mary, and her carpenter husband, Joseph. That house was filled in time with other brothers and sisters. And and for at least the first 30 years, he was closely associated with a family that nobody was clamoring to be connected to. The majesty of the name is displayed in the relationships he established with 12 men that he handpicked from all walks of life, every background imaginable. And for three years, he not only made his home in an obscure village on the Sea of Galilee, but he made his dwelling with those men and said, you're my friends. It's because the majesty of his name, Emmanuel, really does mean God is with us. The majesty of the name is heard in his powerful gospel preaching as he proclaims the way of life through repentance from sin and faith toward him. He's the word of God. The majesty of the name is seen most powerfully at the cross, though, where he lays down his life in sacrifice, atoning for our sins through his shed blood and suffering. He is Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins. The majesty of the name of God is a comprehensive expression of all that God is. All that God is, this shepherd brings to bear upon your life and mine. Now notice this, he will secure his people. Back in Micah 5 we read, they shall dwell secure. That has to do with abiding in one place. We were talking with a friend who grew up in a military home just this past week and he said, I actually enjoyed moving around. It exposed me to many different places and many different cultures, had opportunities to make multiple friends. For some of you, you would say that has no appeal to me. I think what has appeal to all of us though is a sense of stability that regardless of wherever you are, you just feel like I'm home. And the security that this shepherd king provides for his people is that sense of they're always at home, but it's with him. We lose a job and that may necessitate a move or financial hardship comes upon us and we lose a house, a marriage ends and a family is torn apart and some members may even be displaced. In Israel's case, there's a coming exile that is the result of years of sin and unfaithfulness, but this king brings security. I'm sure that for many of you, as it does for me, that sounds really good. Let's look at the final place, though, his exceptional domain. He will rule the world. Now Micah says, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, This is not a regional ruler. It's not a local personality. 
And sometimes people even say, aren't you afraid of this one world government that's coming? I actually pray for a one world government. Now, not the one that you're probably thinking about, but for the one world government that this king will bring. Hymn writer Isaac Watts understood this. And though he did not write it initially as a Christmas carol, we noted this just a couple of weeks ago. When he wrote Joy to the World, it was intended by Watts to be a New Testament expression of praise. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Watts was actually writing with a view of the second coming of Christ where he will descend from heaven with a cry of command and he will be revealed to us as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so with hope and expectation we sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that curse is found everywhere. He will rule the world and then finally he shall be their peace. We think of peace sometimes as an absence of war and that is true. Or we think of peace as environmental tranquility and that's true. We think of peace as relational harmony, and that's true. We may think of peace as financial security and stability, and that would also be a a true example, but I think those examples of peace are secondary to the kind of peace that Micah is prophesying of. This peace is of a different nature. You ever been around a person who's always stirred up and agitated? Yeah, you've anticipated some of those people showing up for Christmas get-togethers, get right? Whether they're you know, part of your family or maybe part of the office and you're just like, oh, they're so-and-so. And just the appearance of that individual like through the front door of your house or you know, coming into the restaurant for that, for that office Christmas party, you, you just feel you know, your chest tightening and your soul tensing. Because you're like, man, I wonder what's wrong in their world today. They're the type of people that there's always something that's amiss. And if there's nothing, you know, recently to report, they can tell you stories from years ago that aren't quite resolved in their hearts. And and you're just like, oh, Lord, please save us from this person. They're not a person of peace. But the peace Jesus Christ establishes is a peace, first of all, of the heart, a peace of the inside. It's interesting to me that most rulers establish their kingdom by conquering a people and claiming physical ground, right? Right? Jesus actually is establishing a kingdom of the heart, and once he gets your heart, the peace spreads outward. Some of you don't have much peace at all within. You have little moments here and there, and you find it through a recreational moment or some medication. You're looking for that sense of calm and tranquility. And so whether you can find it somewhere out there or find it at the bottom of a a bottle, it is. It's not a peace that lasts. It's not even a real peace. But this king comes in order that people like you and me who are just worn out with leadership that's failed us, who've worn out with the struggle that it is to make ends meet day in and day out, and who are worn out with that interior sense of sin and shame and guilt and failure that that we just don't want anybody to know about, but it's there. That's the domain that this king wants to establish his peace First and foremost in. And that's why one of his first great acts of conquest was not to claim Herod's throne, but to ascend Calvary and die on a cross. You know what's curious to me? 
Herod actually becomes an example of one of two responses that I think all of us are, are probably gonna have when Jesus arrives. There's part of me that gets Herod's paranoia. Jesus really is disruptive. And when he enters your little kingdom, though you may think you've got it all under control and you've eliminated all the threats, and remember at this point in Herod's life, he had murdered, I think, what was it, 30-some family members and close associates and hundreds more that he deemed to be rivals. I mean, that, that's his M.O., kill the threat. And then Jesus arrives, and now he's in another panic. But you know, some of you really are in a similar panic because you keep hearing about Jesus as creator, as Lord, as savior, as master, and something inside of you is like, I don't want want him to be my master. I didn't ask Jesus to show up and be my king, but that's what he is. And he will be everyone's king. Philippians tells us that a day comes when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But some will do it as the final testimony of their guilt and rebellion. Herod actually becomes a powerful example of those who reject Jesus and say, I'm king, Jesus is not my king. Is that you? You know, Herod lived out his days tragically. He never found the power or the peace that he thought he had control over. And he, like so many others, died a tragic death because he lived an empty life. Well, I pray, my friends, that that will not be any who are here today. But there is a second response to this great king that we see all through the scriptures, and Micah was among those who responded in faith. The Magi were part of those who responded in faith. The shepherds were part of those who responded in faith. Go back the last two weeks. Simeon was part uh, of that group who responded in faith and said, we need this king. We're not powerful enough, smart enough, wise enough, resourceful enough to govern our own lives. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you through the power of the cross to cleanse away my sin and remove this real guilt and shame from my soul. Jesus, I need you to secure my eternal life and to secure the inheritance that's promised to those who come in faith. Jesus, we need you. And when we call upon him, he does in fact forgive our sin and cleanse our guilt. He does in fact remove all shame and gives a new identity, grants to us all the privileges of a divine sonship and makes you and me heirs of heaven. And his first act of establishing his dominion is to write his law of love on our hearts. It's a powerful transformation. There's no better place in all the world than to be under the dominion of this king. Will you bow your heads with me, please? There's a beautiful Christmas carol. We don't sing it as a church family. But the lines of it read this way, glory of daybreak, sorrows and shadows suddenly break forth into morn. Sing out and tell now, all shall be well now. For in the stable, Jesus is born. The gift of Christ is a gift to a world besieged, not just by failing leaders, but besieged by our own sin. We shut in by our brokenness and worn out by our sin, find a real hope in Christ. He has not yet established his earthly, eternal kingdom, 
but he has begun to rule in the hearts of people like you and me. Is he king in your heart? Have you bowed your heart in submission to him? Until you do, there will be no peace. But when you do, you will know exactly what Micah prophesied so long ago. Father, take this word and seal it to our hearts. And on this Christmas day, take us deeper into your heart, even as you came to draw us to your heart. But the blessing of this Christ's dominion be poured out in every heart, bringing life, bringing forgiveness, bringing hope, bringing peace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen.